there's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on, on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to kind of say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Hello, and you're very welcome to Your Politics Podcast from RT News. I'm Paul Cunningham. Joining me in studio this afternoon is Michal Lahan, who is RT's political correspondent. Michal, welcome. Thank you. And also um, the Green Party leader, Eamon Ryan, who on this particular day, he's got many hats, but on this particular day, we are talking to you as the Environment Stroke Climate Action Minister, because you are going to be going to this big UN climate change meeting in uh, Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. Um, just to start off, if there was one thing which you were hoping to come out of your trip to Egypt as part of that EU delegation, what would it be? I think it is around the issue of justice for the developing world in finance, climate finance, adaptation, loss and damage. That's what this COP, the outcome we do need to get, is we have to keep a united, uh, global, um, multilateral countries working together approach to climate. And I think if if we if that is delivered, I think it would be further progress. Last year in Glasgow, and this is torturous and slow, there was a lot of progress on the rule book and how you account for your emissions, how you trade them, how you kind of the very technical stuff, but it yeah. was actually quite significant. This is not as significant in terms of the, that aspect of the Paris Agreement, but it is important that there's a clear signal and understanding and reality that we do this in a just transition way, that climate justice is the centre of the approach, and that does require financing funding for okay. developing countries. Before we go into that, because there's a, a number of different elements to it, I mean, I just, the Taoiseach Michal Martin was out in Sharm el-Sheikh addressing the conference, and he had this clarion call for action in which he said, if this generation does not step up urgently, future generations will not forgive us. As leaders, it is our responsibility to drive the transformation necessary. And I'm just wondering, would those words have had more impact? And would you have more impact if it was the case that Ireland's climate action plan with the revised sectoral ceilings had been published before you going? Because then people would know exactly what Ireland's plan is because it had been expected that that would happen. We do have... We, our plan is, is a continuation. This goes back... It goes back to the Citizens' Assembly on climate. We started turning this ship around. Now, it's taking time and it needs to turn around and go full steam in the right direction. But we started going in the right direction back with the Citizens' Assembly where we asked the right questions. How could we show leadership as a country? The Joint Directors Committee in 2018 responded to the Citizens' Assembly with its recommended approach. Richard Bruton, as Minister for Climate in 2019, published the first of our plans. And that plan is still at the core of what we're doing. It has been upgraded, though. It was upgraded with the introduction of the climate law last year, which gives it real legal strength. It was further upgraded in the issuing of sectoral targets in agriculture and transport and energy this summer. And it will be further, much more specifically defined in the Climate Action Plan, which we will publish in mid-December. I prefer to get that right than rush it to get it out in advance of COP. I think it helps in some ways in the negotiations I'm involved in. I had a meeting with the Minister of Agriculture yesterday. I have a meeting with the Minister of Housing this afternoon, Minister of Finance tomorrow, to 
to make sure that we do deliver. And it's not, this is no longer about targets or about policy. It's about specifics around how do we make the real changes. So we are... We are heading in the right direction. We need to speed up. And the scale of the change is beyond compare. So the slippage is just four weeks. You're saying that it will be published by mid-December. It's not going to slip into 2023. No, and, and it will be done by mid-December. It has to be. OK, moving on to that issue you were talking about um which was the question of just exactly how are you going to have sort of justice at the heart of any outcome of this particular um, COP? And we keep using that phrase, but it's um, the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention mm. on Climate Change. But let's call it COP27 because okay. that's the 27th time they've met. But at the heart of it, we heard an awful lot about what's called loss and damage initiative. Do you think... You know, it's described by some people as reparations from rich countries to poor countries for the damage they suffered in the past from our emissions. Is that a, a fair summation? And it's also an emergency fund for the likes of, for example, in Pakistan this year, a country is still incredible numbers. Tishik was sharing it this morning in Cabinet. I think it's 130 or plus displaced people, so people without a home because of the flooding events. And part of my mind, the purpose for loss and damage is to provide immediate support and relief uh, for those people and for countries in those circumstances. So it is important that that's part of the deal. Is I, it though? Because I just, there is like, there's climate funding, which is one thing, which is to try and help people to mitigate or adapt to the impacts of climate change. This one seemed to be different. It was about nearly the historical position that we found ourselves. And the, the reason why it's important is because when we Ireland said that it was going to put 10 million into this um, fund, it seems as if we're taking that 10 million from a climate fund, which wasn't actually designed for that. With Ireland, we do a variety of things and we're good at overseas aid and development and yeah. action in climate in, for climate finance. And we're good for a variety of reasons. Firstly, we don't tie it to any other commercial interests or any military objectives or any other strategic interests. We tend to be very practical and real. So it's working often with countries that we already have a relationship with. And it's, it, it, it's very tangible. The fund that the Taoiseach committed to during the last two days in Sharm el-Sheikh it meets those, is, is, is in that area in that it's very specific, very targeted, very real. It is coming out of the uh, 250, 225 million euro fund that we agreed last year to build up over the next four years. And I think it's appropriate to come from there. It is new money. It is real. How can it be new money if it's coming from another fund? Well, that fund hasn't, we have to get to that level in the next three years. And I'll be honest, one of my uh, impatient or one of my uh, tasks is to make sure that we do scale that up. Um, it takes time to do development aid, whether that's for climate adaptation, whether it's for climate uh, loss and damage or whatever different you, it does take certain time to build up the capability, but we need to act fast. We need to be part of a global solution, as I said, which does put justice at its centre. And I think we're well placed to do okay. that. Can I ask you one question? Um, the Taoiseach Michal Martin was talking about ten, this 10 million money going into a, a green shield fund. Yeah. There are some from Christian Aid, from Troker, who've been talking about it would be better if there was a UN-specific um, fund which was going to oversee that. Was that something that you would argue in favour of? Is that something you I would argue we, you would I think we for? need both. I think to spend the $225 million that we've committed to wisely, I think we're going to have to put into both UN funds and projects that were, were directly engaged with. Usually, I think it should be with local communities and local governments. I don't think 
development aid works well when it's it's done from a distance that we know best. So I think it, but that's what we tend to be good at. We tend to be good at working with aid agencies, governments on the ground. And I think we should do that, but also do it through the UN. I, I, I think to be able to spend the 225 wisely, we need a mixture of both. But a loss and damage fund run by the UN, you would back that? Yes, I, and I think we have to, that, that'll be the centre of the negotiations, I'd imagine, in the sure. next week. We do have to do it as part of a United European Union approach. Yeah. I last year was very fortunate, I was in Glasgow, and I ended up on the European Union negotiation team on the issue of climate finance and loss and damage. And I think we're stronger when we work collectively. So I, part of my job, I'm going on Sunday, will be to be part of that EU team so that it's, it's not just Ireland, it's it's the wider strength of the European Union. Can you tell me something about um, your view on what President Robin had to say? People will know, obviously, uh, the first female president, but she's been a, for many years a climate campaigner who's operating at an international level. She was asked about what consequence did the Ukraine conflict have? And she felt there had been a loss of momentum coming out of Glasgow and heading into this particular COP as a result of different prioritisation being given by governments. And it struck me at the time that maybe actually Ukraine could have had the opposite effect because never has there ever been more focus on things like generating your own clean energy and then there ever hasn't been before. What's your sense of it? I heard Mary on the Morning Ireland of the morning and I think you could see her point in the sense that the immediate response would seem to be a rush for gas and for coal and for other sources other than Russian gas and particularly in Africa and other, you know, kind of colleagues going down looking for kind of whatever gas contracts they could get. And that would fill you with despondency, think, oh, God, we're going to respond to this crisis by opening up new fossil fuel sources. But my experience among the European Energy Council is that what it will be seen to have done is actually accelerated the switch to renewables. That actually the fundamental change that's happening now is a sw- has to happen for climate reasons, but also for strategic reasons, geopolitical strategic reasons, is switch to renewables. No one is ever going to go to war over renewables. You will never be able to hold someone to ransom by threatening to blow up a solar panel or a wind turbine. Everyone has access to renewables in a whole variety of different sources. It allows the developing countries particularly leapfrog into this new industrial revolution that is taking place. I listened very carefully to what Mary said because I think she's an incredibly powerful and important voice on climate. I think what I heard her saying at the end of that interview is true. We have to be careful we don't just get into a doom-laden narrative that nothing's happening, we're lost, the world is finished, we're in real trouble. We are in real trouble, there's no one doubting that. But what did she say? She said, on the horizon, we can see a better future. It is within reach. And that is in this alternative, renewable, digital, organic, green future. And that will provide us with greater security. It will stop those wars, so many wars in my lifetime in Iraq, in in some other countries where it's been about oil, in Kuwait. You can think of the examples over the years in Iraq. in Ukraine now, it's a war where energy has been used as a weapon. And I think what she said the other day is true. While we are in an incredibly precarious, urgent situation, there is hope. And we have to give people that sense of the path. It is renewable. It is towards that switching away from fossil fuels at scale and at speed in Ireland and everywhere. But just to pick up on that, in Ireland, two things which have um, been a focus of much attention when it's come to energy. You also happen to be the minister Mm. related to that um, portfolio. One is getting offshore wind. And we did have companies interested who left 
and that's raised questions as to whether or not we're going to be able to deliver it. And the second then is in the very short term, this demand to have some form of gas storage and there seems to be some tension in government with Fine Gael and people like um, Patrick O'Donovan, Minister of State, backing LNG portals. On both of those questions, where are things stand? First one, we've just come out of Cabinet and we've Spill agreed... the beans. Yeah, we've a significant story today because we've agreed our offshore renewables support mechanism. It'll be published later today or tomorrow. And it is a significant milestone in the direction of tapping into the offshore wind resource we have, which is huge. Our sea area is seven times our land area. It happens to be the windiest place on the planet. We are good at developing wind power. We're probably the third largest developer of wind onshore by size of the country and the market of any country. And we're good at integrating it and using it. We're now going to do the same on offshore. It'll start with seven projects, one on the West Coast, six on the East, which um, will go into an auction system before this Christmas. So we're starting now. The rules we agreed in Cabinet today will tell the companies what how they can bid in. It gives certainty around the support price. And there it's a support price which, if the market price is high, which it is at the moment, that subsidizes and that goes back to subsidize the cost, lowers the cost of electricity. If it's low, then the, the developer gets a support so that they know that they've got a regular price. And that allows them to bid in what we see in other countries. Uh, this has been a very competitive power supply. Uh, we've also agreed that the arrangements around how you index link it or sort of what sort of length of time for supports. And that those sort of very technical details are actually critical and important. Is there I, a price tag on that? It depends. The, the key thing on the price tag is how we use the power when it comes ashore. With this large scale, and it is large scale, um, like what, what we could develop if we developed all the projects which are going to planning, and they won't all be developed. Someone could through planning, someone will get through the auction system. But if we did, it would be the equivalent to the amount of energy we're using at the moment in the country. All those lights, this microphone, everything about us, uh, it's that scale of power, so it's huge. One of the ways that we reduce the cost is if we devise ways in which we use that power in a really clever way. So that's in the middle of the night when this, these wind terms are turbine, but turning, but there isn't actually a big energy demand. We make sure there is demand at that time. We manage our industries and other mechanisms so that you've got flexible demand uh, to use it when the wind is blowing. Then it becomes very cheap. If we also build interconnection, and we're doing this, we're going to build an interconnection to France another interconnector to the UK. So again, when the time the wind is blowing, we export it into Europe. These new cables, high voltage direct current cables, they can sell power over long distances with very low losses. And that's an export opportunity for our country. And if we also do things like storage, last week I was down in Silver Mines in uh, Tipperary as one example, where there's looking at a possibility of a pump storage system, similar to Turlock Hill, but bigger, where you can use uh, that bat that wind power, let's say at night, to pump the water up to a higher water source. And then when it's busy, when during the day, when you need the power, it runs down through a turbine like Ardna Crusher, which powered this country at the start. And it's so, if you have that, if you have interconnection, if you have clever use of the power, and if you have storage with batteries and other pump storage systems, then the Irish consumer is saves. It's, it's actually cheaper because the marginal cost of that wind at that middle of the night is really low. So you're getting really good value out of it. No, I, I no. mentioned, just one other thing if I mentioned, I mentioned it because it was down last don't, week. If you, if you stay with that particular topic, okay. yeah, it, it's just in relation to the fact that no one doubts 
this. We've been learning about um, the capacity. We've learned about our abilities. We've learned about the benefits that will come to the country. The question has been is we haven't seen action on the ground. You're saying that you're going to have the first auction coming up next month. I suppose when are we going to see electricity being generated? It'll take five years. But one thing I'd say, we were discussing at Cabinet today, and this has been repeated elsewhere, but it, it bears repeating. Arden across you is an example of what we can do as a country at a time when we were incredibly poor. A government made an incredibly brave decision where they went for the largest hydroelectric system in the world uh, from a young engineer from Galway. He, was, he wasn't out of his 20s. The cabinet colleagues weren't much older and they committed to delivering it, which they did on time, on budget, and it transformed our country. There is a similar sense, in my mind, of political commitment at the moment in this country that we will go in this renewable direction for climate reasons, for security reasons, for economic interests. We have just agreed today, as I said, the rules in, ter- in terms of how the, how the auction system will work. And that starts before Christmas. The Attorney General is going full steam, excuse the inappropriate <laughs> metaphor, in changing and looking at our planning laws so that we don't have an incredibly complicated planning system, that we get the environmental aspect of this right. And again, that, again, will be delivered. A lot of the changes, they'll have to go to parliamentary scrutiny and so on. We've got to get this environmental aspect of it right. But that is coming with real certainty. And the European Union is absolutely committed to this project. So we know we're going to get European Union support. So we will deliver it. I remember back in 2008, I was at Energy Minister, 2007, and I said, we're going to go for a target of 40% renewable electricity by 2020. Everyone said we'd never do it, where it couldn't possibly do it, wouldn't be possible. We delivered it. We're going to go to 80% renewable electricity in our system by the end of this decade. I'm absolutely convinced and certain we can deliver that. Okay. And then just the second issue, which was the far more short-term issue about um, LNG, um, whether or not there's issues between coalition parties, because certainly if you listen to people like Breed Smith, their climate spokesperson from People Before Profit, they say this is um, makes you just guilty of greenwashing if you're going to go down the LNG road. Two things. In that renewable future, we will use gas as a backup to the end of this decade, and then we'll start switching the natural gas to hydrogen gas, green hydrogen gas, which you generate from the electricity. So we do need new gas-fired stations to back up that wind. You would have more gas stations, but actually using less gas because you only use it when the wind isn't blowing. So it's actually a backup, renewables is the centre, and you do need that. Part of that, um, well, firstly, we're part of a UK and Norway, a Norwegian gas system, which is not connected to the Russian gas uh, crisis. We're not dependent on Russian gas. But we are going to introduce gas storage because what's happened in the Russian war, the likes of those Nord Stream pipelines being blown up, shows that it does make sense to have an absolute to be cast iron certain you're not in a difficulty in this interim period. While we develop the green hydrogen alternative, you have gas storage. And that gas storage is not for commercial purposes. It's for security purposes. It's state-controlled, state-led, state-regulated to give you security in those circumstances. And it's designed in a way that it can be part of the alternative which everyone is going towards, which is this green hydrogen alternative rather than natural gas. So, yes, we will have storage. It will not be the sort of commercial LNG that people have been kind of promoting and promising. It will be security and state state regulation to help give us that gap or that security over the interim period. 
And just one other question I had for you, which just related to um, something I hadn't heard of. I, I always remembered the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. I hear that there's talk about a fossil fuel yeah. non-proliferation treaty. Is that something that Ireland should be backing? Is that something Ireland should be taking a lead on? Because in the 50s, we were taking the lead in relation to nuclear. Yes, and we already are. Last year in Glasgow, I joined on behalf of the country, the Beyond Oil and Gas Coalition. Yeah. And that is connected to that where and we're already done this. And the strength we have as a country is this is agreed politically across all parties in the House in, in, in the Oireachtas. Um, we don't explore for new oil and gas. We don't frack for oil and for, for gas or, or tight oil. We, we, are, we are committed because the world has to switch away from new fossil fuel resources. The existing fossil fuel resources, if they in their entirety were used, would be sufficient to push us over the tipping points in climate that we have to avoid. The last thing we need is new additional uh, exploration for oil and gas. And that's why that non-proliferation concept is exactly right. And can I just ask you after today's cabinet decision, I mean, would it be a realistic target that would say half of the energy requirements per day could be generated by offshore wind by 2027 if you're looking at that five-year period? Take, it'll take a couple of years. It probably They'll start coming on board. It depends on how long they go in planning. They'll start arriving in 26, 27, 28. Um, but yes, that would be, that's absolutely achievable. But we don't stop there. The second phase, so the first phase is those seven projects, however many get built out. The second phase, we start to move into southern and western waters. And there we very much connect to our ports, be that Wexford, be it Cork, be it Shannon Foynes. I was in Shannon Foynes, as I said last week, as part of this trip I was doing. And there's huge potential there because when you start going to the west, you're into a different technology. As you'll know, you go west of Carasavine, within a kilometre, you're down to 100 metres of water. So fixed offshore wind won't work. It has to be floating. Now, these are very, very large devices. These are the size of, you know, the chimneys down in Pool Bar, chimneys down in Money Point. They're that height. And, but they float. They float on foundations which are either steel or concrete. We will fabricate them in Shannon Foynes and we will ship them out and... That power, where that's where the real large wind resource is, you then bring ashore. The advantage of this is, if you look at, just take that estuary as an example, we have Money Point and Tarbert on either point of the entry to the estuary where you have really good grid connections. When you bring the power ashore there, you're straight onto an electricity grid. You don't have to build pylons. We also have Agnes Illumina, Irish Cement, Wyatt, Shannon Airport. There are four users who could use either the electricity or if you convert it to either ammonia or um, green hydrogen, as I said, you have an industrial base. And that's not the only industrial base. I had a meeting last week with the Shannon um, uh, Estuary Economic Task Force. They absolutely get it, that this is the way forward. In the same way that the investment in Ireland, Russia 95 years ago, underpinned the economic development of the state, this new power supply has the prospects of doing the same. And the real attractive thing about it, in my mind, is that it brings, it, it lifts the West. It actually, that's where the power is strongest. And the energy smart people are saying, you put the industry close to where the energy is. And I think in the long run, that's why it will give a better balanced development in the country as we bring the industry west. And could that make a difference? Uh, George Lee just uh, filed a story from Sharm el-Sheikh in which there had been new analysis in relation to the output of greenhouse gas emissions. Dublin Airport came first with a million tonnes in 2021 and he went down. It was all cement, 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 cement below that. Mm. In that new world, <laughs> does that mean you can have a cement industry which isn't going to be emitting 
I think it's interesting, as I said, I'm in a series of one-on-one -on -one bilaterals with different ministers at the moment. In every sector, the challenge is so huge and the scale of the change is so great. What I'd say to them first and foremost is doing nothing is not an option. Like we put in a very strong commitment to the programme for government about having our emissions this decade and net zero within three decades. And sometimes I think people might think, ah, oh, that's just a Green Party political, kind of, you know, they're putting, they're getting us to do something impossible. What I'd say to my colleagues all the time is, even if we didn't have that in our programme for government, even if we didn't have it in our law, we are not going to go to the European Union and say, count Ireland out, because this is the centre of European Union economic strategy as well. But also, the companies that come to this country, invest in this country, they're also committed to decarbonisation. We're not going to hold our hands up and say, count Ireland out, we don't want to be a green nation. It just it doesn't work in so many different ways. So the scale of the challenge and the change is beyond compare, but we do not have an option not to go for it and deliver it and do it. And i just give you a couple of examples, just to mention about cement and concrete. You could do one, so maybe. Okay, well, housing, timber frame. We need to go at scale where we embody, where, where we store the carbon in wood in our buildings, which is there for hundreds of years. Now, that's a change. That's not easy. The concrete industry, the cement industry would all say, oh, no, we can't do it that quickly. We have, but we do need to do it in that area as well as in so many other areas. We need to act fast. And the benefit of it is that it, or the only way it will work is if it's a better outcome. Take that. Timber frame housing works. You can assemble it very quickly. We have a natural resource in the timber we're growing and we're about to really scale up our forestry sector. So we know we have a, have a certain supply. And that and so many other examples I could cite where you go to do something that's going to be better for the country anyway, but it's change and it's a scale and a speed of change that people don't understand that's coming, but we have to do it. Climate Action Minister Eamon Ryan, good luck. Can I just ask one oh, yeah? question before you? And you were talking about the West. In the meantime, before the offshore kicks in, is there any possibility, and you hear this mentioned in the chamber a bit, of Carib, the Carib field being further explored or, or, or a new uh, source of gas coming from there? I said I was energy minister back in the, in the day, and I remember there was a pocket near Carib. People thought it was the great white hope that, oh, that's be, there'd be another. And I remember when the drill bit went down through it and zip, nothing there. Isn't, there's, not only do we not need to explore for oil and gas for climate reasons, the truth is we've run out 160 times. We found gas three times out of that. It costs 100 million a pop. And the odds of finding something is 100 to 1 against. It's insanity. Whereas we know offshore wind is there at scale, the biggest resource and the strongest resource in the world. We know the technology exists and is in operation. Our neighbouring country, Britain and Scotland, uh, have shown how you can do it. So why would you spend 100 million on a 100 to 1 outside bet that damages the planet, whereas going for something we know is the industry of the future where we can and will have a real advantage? Eamon Ryan, Minister, thank you very much for joining us. And um, we'll be tracking your progress um, in Egypt over the next week. And um, Michal, if I can just come to you just in relation to um, the climate summit, um, it is certainly getting coverage, uh, political terms. But once again, because this isn't like a treaty um, summit, uh, a treaty COP, it does mean that um, it, I suppose the message gets slightly more diffuse. Yeah, and what I find about it when, when you see the debates that are taking place at the summit and then when it kind of 
more precise or specific debate takes place here, whether that's in relation to the scaling down the burning of things like turf, you can see just how divisive it still is. So even when agreement is reached around the wording and around the rhetoric, it still seems that when individual measures come before the House here, that this, these type of topics remain incredibly divisive, notwithstanding uh, the doomsday scenarios that are presented and are presented in the clearest terms now. Um, OK, we're going to shift um, topics now. We're just joined by Sandra Hurley of our political staff. Um, a good few stories running around, even though it doesn't seem incredibly busy here um, over the past two weeks. Um, let's talk about one thing, this ongoing diplomatic dance between um, Pascal Donoghue, Michael McGrath and the European members of the Eurozone. What's the latest there? Well, the government reached this agreement last Friday. Apparently, there was talks across the day to finalise the details of it. And, and we it was really firmed up. We were told that Ireland is going to nominate Pascal Donoghue uh, to go for up for election for this president of the Eurogroup role again. It was also confirmed that he would be moving to the Ministry for uh, Public Expenditure. I mean, largely expected, but this is the first time we'd seen it confirmed. And then the expectation is that Michael McGrath will go for finance. So now it's at the stage. Uh, Pascal Dunne, who was back as president of the Eurogroup on Monday in Brussels. The election will happen over the next while. Um, I think we'll know more in early December. Uh, I think it's interesting some of the machinations behind this. If if this was something that Fianna Fáil moved for because they have facilitated essentially this Fine Gael minister uh, being put forward as the state's nominee for this big Eurogroup role, well, what does Fianna Fáil get in return? I think lots of speculation about cabinet roles. Could it be that, you know, Micheál Martin, there's some sort of deal there eventually to go to foreign affairs? I mean, we certainly don't know. This is all in the realms of speculation. But who cares? Yes, but who <laughs> cares let's let's keep fueling it up Paul because we need to as you said it's been a quiet week we need you know we need to kind of rev it up a bit uh, and certainly as we know in the run-up to the middle of December and the the expected reshuffle there's just going to be endless speculation around all well, of let's this. continue the speculation yes. straight away Michal on our fantasy cabinet where do things currently stand well, I suppose when you do look at that and that decision that was reached, and it is a degree of clarity that we didn't expect specifically that Pascal Donoghue is going to the Department of Public Expenditure. There had been speculation that someone like Heather Humphreys or Simon Harris might end up in that role. That obviously was wide of the mark. And I suppose from a Fianna Fáil perspective, you can see the Taoiseach's intervention at the party thinking, and then Michael McGrath speaking on this week in the most strident terms, that it would be the finance minister that would represent Ireland at the Eurogroup. Mm. That has been secured, uh, and yet a way has been found, it seems, uh, that keeps Pascal Donoghue's uh, international role uh, intact for the moment at least uh, and he certainly has a good tilt at it. After that the question still remains what does Michal Martin get in the reshuffle? The Overadker is saying it's very clear he gets whatever he wants that's the way the deal works that's the way it worked for him so is it something like enterprise uh, or is it foreign affairs? For foreign affairs there's the obvious uh, difficulty for Michal Martin that is if he is away a lot well he has a certain group of people uh, who will get more space to move against him. As well as that, if you're going for foreign affairs, just the whole symbolism of it, are you sending out a signal that your time is done, that it is one final lap perhaps before trying to get a go at a European uh, Commission mm -hmm. job in the future? The signal alone, as well as the practicalities of not being here all the time, does that present a difficulty? The third option for Michal Martin, some people say, will he go away? Will he go back to his education routes? He was talking about primary education today in the chamber and you could see his face lighting up uh, when it came to talking about that. It will be that higher education role, that role 
role that someone Fine Gael said that wasn't their idea actually that was Michal Martin's idea is he looking to a place like that that would seem to be moving himself towards the back of the grid though yeah. uh, as a party leader uh, in a coalition government and, and just one thing when um there was some sort of opposition murmurings um, when it was announced that Pascal Donoghue was going to try and seek to become um, president of the Eurogroup for a second term. And it was Piers Doherty of Sinn Féin who said somewhat dismissively, good luck to him, but, you know, what people are really concerned about is the cost of living. And it triggered a response from Bridget Laffin, the... the um, former professor, um, who was once again critiquing Sinn Féin over this value of Ireland playing at an international level, that um, through that you could get influence. That's how the multilateral system works. Um, it was interesting, Labour's Jed Nash was on a, on a similar thing, saying influence is good, but bring it all the way back down to cost of living again, Sandra. Yeah, I, I wonder, you know, does the general voter care that Ireland well, has the presidency Well, people do approach Pascal Dunahoo in Tesco and Fibsbury, Tesco don't and they, Fibsbury. on very precise well, European That is a known hub for policy. discussion of <laughs> yeah. fine political matters, that. so uh, yeah, no doubt. Um, I wonder, though, do, does the general voter really care? I also think the government has a difficult line sometimes to sell uh, on all of this in that I was listening to Michael McGrath uh, on RT's News at One programme today, and on the one hand, he was trying to say that their roles on the Eurogroup would be completely separate, that obviously he's representing Ireland as the Minister for Finance. He will go to the Eurogroup and the ECOFIN meetings and Pascal Dunn, who will be completely neutral as the chair. But then the obvious question was, well, if he's completely neutral as in the chair, then how <laughs> exactly is he representing Ireland and helping with some sort of soft power to advance our general uh, a general understanding of where Ireland stands? I mean, it had always been said by the government that it helped to have Pascal Dunn, who there during the corporate tax negotiations. Now, those seem to have stalled at the moment. So who knows where that's going to end I up? But maybe it helps in that wonderful multilateral way it helps in ways that he can never say yes exactly and, and difficult to explain ways uh, yes. you know sort of intangible it's but, like but it's there floating there yeah it's somewhere. In the ether somewhere but yeah difficult line to tread I think to try and say both things that it's great but at the same time he's completely neutral so yeah. those two don't marry um, it will be an achievement though I mean Pascal Dunneau and Jean-Claude Juncker will be the only two who have yes. managed to mm-hmm. pull this one out but we'll see. First of all, will there be a candidate? We know that Pascal Donahue's victory was to a certain extent a surprise, not so taken away from his, his work, but that the Spanish finance minister was also interested in it. Will she decide to give it a second tilt? But um, bring it back to matters back at home. Um, interesting that Sinn Féin once again yesterday and today came back to the question of housing and having a go at the government over its, um, uh, as it argues, failures in, uh, uh, with regard to delivering. Yeah, damning words from Mary Lou Macdonald. She said, highest rents, highest house prices and highest levels of homelessness. That's the government's record. Michal Martin saying this is a populist approach again. That's how he uh, countered. And he said that the plan, Housing for All, is working and talking about exceeding that target of 24,600 homes being delivered this year. But there is no doubt about it that Sinn Féin are picking up on a reality and the countless stories uh, recounted by Mary Lou Macdonald about people who, who are stuck either can't buy a home or are in fear of being evicted from their rented property. That is a very real fear and it's something that for people of all age groups, but particularly those with say 40 and under, mm-hmm. are feeling very acutely. And to say a plan is working even if it is, it, it seems like it will take more time uh, for that to become absolutely clear to people before they actually begin to feel it. Uh, it does put the government on a back foot at some stage, as well as that, Dara O'Brien, the housing minister, saying that there isn't a housing emergency, does seem a little wider the mark, given what people are experiencing. Yeah, I mean, you are our man of the Sinn Féin Ardesh at the weekend. What did you learn? Did you get any memorabilia? Uh, Didn't get any memorabilia, no. but, no but, it, 
But housing was the, the big issue yeah. at, at that. You could see moves by Mary Lou MacDonald uh, for the first time in a speech, kind of meaningful moves in terms of words, some would say platitudes mm. when it comes to climate and things like energy independence, as she was talking about. At the same time, in the more detailed discussion in the morning on that, it, it was back to that case of Sinn Féin will bring people together, uh, people will move uh, at a pace they're comfortable with because it has to be that if there is going to be meaningful change to meet those targets. But when it came to specifics, uh, they weren't there. Indeed, you could say the speech, uh, while well-crafted, was fairly light on specifics uh, when it came to possible government policy. I thought the comments on the week in politics the next day were interesting too, that all coalition options uh, are on the table for Sinn Féin, it seems. Yeah, I mean, we're keeping an international perspective to this particular podcast, but once again, it's no surprise that a Sinn Féin leader would mention the Palestinian cause in a speech, but um, maybe it was more substantial than it normally had, trying to reflect the violence which has taken place in Palestine over the past year. Some of the UN agencies saying it's been the worst in years. Yeah, that was very clear, as well as that, a real mention early on in the keynote speech around Ukraine and Mary Lou MacDonald earlier in the day, defending that charge again made by Michal Martin, that when she linked housing policy domestically and providing emergency accommodation for people fleeing the war in Ukraine, that she was in some way playing a populist card as well when she used that term, our own people, Mm. saying that wasn't the case and instead using the words, our friends from Ukraine, but equally making the point that you can't talk about a housing crisis and an accommodation crisis for refugees without mentioning them both at some point. It's a difficult one and there's a sensitivity around that and you could see it again uh, in the chamber today, independent TD Thomas Pringle talking about the situation in Donegal and again referencing uh, the difficulties around accommodation generally uh, for people fleeing the war. Yeah, he was talking about MICA and people affected homes and if those new homes are going to be built, where would those families stay? And he said things have been speeded up for people in Ukraine and he added and rightly so, yes. but we wanted to see there was something equal or yeah. mirrored for those who were in those difficulties. Absolutely, there's a sensitivity involved. Um, Sandra, was there anything else over the course of the week which sort of grabbed your attention? Well, I don't think we can leave the podcast without doing the weekly Mark McSharry slot. We should have a jingle now at this stage. Yeah, as we all know, he formally resigned the Fianna Fáil whip last week. But today he had a big row in the doll with the last Kian Corla, Catherine Connolly. This was around lunchtime at the end of the order of business. He said he hadn't been, he wanted to introduce a point of order. They hadn't been given time. He told her that she consistently put him in the last three speakers. And she asked him to sit down. He refused. So the last Kian Corla suspended the dolls. So uh, I'm also during told, lunchtime. Well, during uh, during <laughs> lunchtime, sure. This was about twenty past one. But you know, it, it certainly denoted a certain anger there. And he did make a point that some of you, he was making a point about what he called real independence. That some align themselves into de facto parties in order, of course, to get speaking time. Those are the rules. But at the moment, he is completely non-aligned. So he clearly feels that he doesn't get the same time that's uh, allowed to other independents. The other development, of course, is that tonight is the parliamentary party meeting in Fianna Fáil, the first time this is likely to be aired. So I think you might expect some perhaps to raise this with Micheál Martin and see what he has to say. Mac McSharry finding himself in that particular scenario now where he's essentially without any boat uh, in a chamber that requires uh, some degree of alignment may suggest this wasn't, or maybe it was, but could it could it be that this wasn't fully thought through, uh, this move into the independent Do you think it, it was just ranks? an angry... Could, it, could that yeah. be... I like yeah. the way you ask questions rather than making statements, Mio Lan, mm. such matters. But it was fairly clear if you talk about a statement. Uh, Mark McSharry took down the Fianna Fáil sign from the constituency office in Sligo Town. It's gone. It's finished. It's over. Mm. We think it's over. Is it? For now. I think, I wonder, I just wonder, under a different leader, 
could an overture be made yeah. ahead of the next general election, given that it is thought that Mark Mashari has a, a decent vote there? And certainly if he runs as an independent, he'll split the vote with Fianna Fáil. That's going to cause big problems. Sinn Féin will try and get two people in. So could a new leader entice him back because they need all the seats they can get? If I were to think, if you think, who are the three potential new leaders that Fianna Fáil people talk about? I think take Jim O'Callaghan out of that for now. So it's Michael McGrath, Dara O'Brien and Dara Cleary. Mm-hmm. So I think of them, Dara Cleary certainly uh, friends, could, could yeah. find a way mm-hmm. of bringing Mac Masharry back. I'm not sure and we'll about the, anyone else. And we're just speculating now on, on a Friday afternoon, but um, or Friday, a Wednesday <laughs> afternoon, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> exactly. Um, do you believe, Mia Lahan, that there's going to be any flack for the Taoiseach who has said, listen, I tried my best, the door was open, if someone doesn't want, want to walk through it, nothing to do with me. Yeah, I'd say there could be. Equally though, I think the after the last meeting, uh, before the midterm break and before the Dáil recess, there was a feeling that this was moving and Jack Chambers' words were that it would be done at the earliest opportunity mm. if Mark McSharry had written a, a letter to him. Uh, so, I don't know. Uh, there will be a degree of flack, but just how intense it will be, I'm not so sure. Um, anything else coming up in the next, in rest of the month? I think the Greens are going to Athlone. Yes, um, as are Fine Gael. Fine Gael. I think also going to Athlone. Athlone, not the centre of Ireland, but the political centre of focus for the end of November. So very exciting Ordesh is ahead there. I just realised I'm going to both cover both of them. So You're so lucky. <laughs> exactly. Where else not, would you be at the weekend? I'm not going to ask myself what's coming up because I don't know just yet. But anyway, that's probably the, the, the highlight of it. But um, that's really it for uh, now. I'd like to thank all of my guests, Mia Holahan, Sandra Hurley and also Minister Eamon Ryan. Thanks for listening to your politics podcast from RTE News. Uh, please do subscribe. Please do leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. But until next time, take care.